Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The federal government announced large industrial companies in Canada will see a lower carbon emissions limit next year when Trudeau's liberals put a price on emissions. What does the premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, think about that? I spoke with Catherine Galliford, former RCMP corporal and troopmate to Krista Carley, who took her own life just weeks ago, and Dr. Karen Breek, a retired Canadian Armed Forces physician. Listen. Beth is the Ontario intractable pain patient who secretly recorded her desperate call to the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons seeking help. You heard part one last week. Listen to part two. Scott Moore is the Premier of Saskatchewan. The Premier is very kind uh, to us with his time on this program as we talk about carbon issues and carbon taxes and the province of Saskatchewan's determination not to play ball with the uh, Trudeau government on its carbon tax initiatives, which are going to do nothing to help the provinces or certainly the provinces like Saskatchewan. Premier, it's good to have you back with us. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate it. Premier, earlier in the week, we had the federal government announcing that the, as far as large industry is concerned in Canada, there's going to be uh, an easing, if you will, of the regulations or the taxes or the fees as far as emissions are concerned. And uh, firms that produce 50 megatons of carbon dioxide or similar levels of pollution, uh, writes the Financial Post, uh, a year won't face any penalties until their emissions reach 80% of the average within their specific industry. That previous limit was 70%, according to a framework that was published on the 27th of July by the Environment Ministry. What do you, uh, what do you make of the decision taken by, by Ottawa? Is it good, bad, indifferent, opportunistic? Well, I said earlier this week, and I, I, I stand by it, uh, you know, watered-down poison is still poison, and, and this policy from the get-go has been economic poison for, for our province and many other provinces across across Canada. And, and listen, what, what we're seeing here is an admission of, of what the province of Saskatchewan and others have been saying in the industry across the nation for almost two years now, is that this most certainly is going to have an impact, a very severe impact, on many of our industries in this nation and we see a recognition of that now by our federal government finally uh, they, they've they've said the last two years that you know bolstered by reports from the eco-fiscal commission and other other groups that economic groups or so-called economic groups that have said you know this will this won't have an impact or the impact will be very marginal we had a u of r study in saskatchewan that said for for less than a, a percent reduction in emissions uh, in our province uh, this carbon taxation uh, policy um, would cost about $1.8 billion a year, almost $2 billion a year to the economy in Saskatchewan. This is precisely uh, where our conversation started on some of the hurdles and challenges and, and uncertainty in our environment that we have in Canada that we're not seeing south of the border. You're seeing the investment uh, flow to those those areas of the world 
such as the United States, and those jobs uh, are, are going with it. So this is a, as, as I said, this watered-down poison, it's still poison. It's so, economic poison for our nation. So, so no change as far as the province of Saskatchewan is concerned, as far as your approach to the federal government on their carbon tax and their carbon fees is concerned. No change at all. Um, we'll continue with our reference case. Uh, what we're seeing here, this is, I won't say this is worse, but it's equally as bad because now we see the federal government uh, picking winners and losers uh, in, in the industry, and we know mm-hmm. the record of any government uh, on that. We also see in this uh, a watering down for a few corporations and a few industries, but nothing for, for everyday working Canadians across the nation. Uh, they're still going to pay to take their children to their to their sports events, to their school, wherever wherever they may go. So no no mitigation for Canadians, but for a few select industries, uh, you're going to see a little bit of mitigation. We have the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, saying, we want to have the most energy-efficient, smart industries here that create good jobs at the same time do what we need to do to tackle emissions. It's just, it's uh, uh, it sounds like double talk, and it is double talk, and as you point out, Things haven't changed. Things don't seem to be improving for the average family who has to fill up a vehicle, has to put groceries on the table, has to deal with an already high taxation rate, and now doesn't know really exactly what's going to be happening going forward. Because it appears the federal government doesn't know what they're going to be doing. (laughs) Yeah, Roy, Roy, I'll I'll speak from Saskatchewan's perspective, but I think it's fair to say that any province across this nation um, could say the very same words. Um, if you truly care about the environment, you should buy more product from Saskatchewan and this of this Canada. Um, whether it be uh, our sustainably produced agricultural products, our potash that is produced as sustainably as any in the, anywhere in the world, we should be selling our energy products that have some great targets in, in methane reductions uh, laying, laying out, uh, out to the year 2030, as well as the way that we produce that energy right now. We should be able to access not only our Canadian markets, but offset barrels of oil that are sold all around the world thereby making a, a sustainability, uh, an environmental difference uh, in what is a very global challenge in global climate change. This, this is what Canada has to offer, is the innovation and the sustainable industries that we have. We need to enhance the use of, of those products around the world. And this is the fork in the road that I had, I had said that we, we stand at here as we look forward, is, is we need to make some decisions on whether we, we truly do view climate change as a global challenge and we truly view our industries as being sustainable we need to do what we can uh, to enhance uh, the use of our products all all around the world. And I don't see us doing that right now, and it's very concerning for our province and our nation. Just one more question, Premier, and we have about a minute and a half left in uh, Duncan on Vancouver Island. Uh, the Prime Minister was uh, yesterday defending his government's decision to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and uh, he knew that he was going to run into opposition, so clearly they arranged for, for that particular uh, that particular appearance by Mr. Trudeau. But as you pointed out a few minutes ago, there are other starters, not non-starters, but starters that need to be re-addressed, re-started, uh, re, uh, uh, as it were. And that includes Energy East. There are, there are opportunities, and where there opportunities for this country now become requirements. For sure, we we have a we have a site in New Brunswick that has, my understanding, has an environmental environmental impact assessment done on it for a refinery, uh, not only to service uh, Canadians with uh, likely what is one of the most sustainable energy products in the world, some of it coming from Saskatchewan, um, but also to use that as a as an export point to offset uh, dirtier 
barrels of oil that are produced in, in, in other areas of the world with our Canadian product. And, and then we can continue to work with our industries to ensure that it's more sustainable than it already is into the future. But we must also recognize where it is uh, today and look at, at uh, products like or, uh, infrastructure projects like Energy East. Uh, let's get Kinder Morgan built, however we need to do that, I agree. And then, and then let's start looking at how we can get additional products around the world to our markets around the world mm-hmm. over our rails or where, however that may be. Premier, thank you so much for the time. I really always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's always my pleasure. Women first responders across the board are in need of community support because they've experienced challenges. They've experienced the kind of indignities and, frankly, criminal law-breaking actions that no human being should be expected to um, uh, allow to happen. We know the the stories that have circulated about uh, Canada's military, and uh, we've talked to firefighters, female firefighters, in, uh, in Halifax and in Toronto. And so over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Karen Breek. She's a retired Canadian Armed Forces physician, and uh, we've gotten to know each other a, a, a little bit on the phone, and, and I know that uh, Dr. Breek has gone through her not fair share of, uh, of uh, terrible treatment. And so what we want to do here is really honor women first responders, many who live with PTSD, and receive not nearly sufficient support. Now, Krista Carley, who just weeks ago took her own life, was a former RCMP officer subjected to sexual harassment and was a leader in the class action lawsuit. Ms. Carley was a frequent guest on this program over the past 10 years, and it was pointed out to me by Dr. Breek that there's no uh, real support that's, that's out there now, but there is a new program which helps women first responders greatly with their PTSD, but there's no financial support. There is a GoFundMe page, I think, that's available. We're going to find out as we speak to a Dr. Karen Breek and to Catherine Gallifard. Catherine was one of the first women I spoke with within the RCMP, the former RCMP corporal, a troopmate to Krista Carley, and she was the face of the RCMP in many uh, news reports nationally on, on television and in other broadcast and print media. Catherine, how are you? I'm doing well now, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm fine. I'm so I'm glad to talk to you again. Uh, the circumstances, are, we we could wish for them to be better, but there there is real interest in continuing to improve, improve the reality for women first responders, public re, public interest. So that's well, good. Thing. There absolutely is, but I think one of the uh, reasons for that is that up until relatively recently. Um, First responders, generally speaking, have never spoken publicly about PTSD and uh, how hard it is to um, do your job as a first responder, but then also be harassed and abused by your colleagues because of your gender. And this is going on simultaneously? Yes, it is. So, Dr. Breek, Karen, thank you for for talking to me as, as in as much detail as you have in the conversations we've had and the emails we've exchanged over the last several weeks. 
Uh, you're a retired CAF physician. Perhaps you can put into uh, a clinical perspective that we can understand what PTSD is, how it affects women who are first responders, how it affects uh, uh, Catherine Galliford, and, and uh, even today may affect her, and how it affected you as a member of the, of the armed forces. Thanks, Ray. Um, I think I will actually sort of pick up on that last part. Uh, I have actually myself not been working as a physician for almost a decade now since I left the military. Um, so a lot of my experience has been as a patient myself going through the journey, but also because of my background, going through the different uh, resources that are and are not available, especially as a female, and especially as a female um, also on a first responder versus sort of a hardcore army role, how difficult the challenges have been. So for me, that was one of the reasons I thought it was really important to start speaking out a little bit more, um, because for me, I found a program that was certainly something I've been searching for for a long time, I hadn't even been aware of it. It hadn't been publicized very much through the veteran community, and it was called Project Trauma Support. And it's been put together by two physicians, one of whom is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Bussman, who is in charge of rehabilitation services. So he's taking care of all of our injured soldiers um, that are the same ones that we see moving on to Invictus Games and doing amazing um, activities through things like True Patriot Love and climbing Mount Everest and Antarctic missions. So we've always been kind of very focused on the physical injuries, but even someone from his background was noticing there was a cohort that wasn't getting better. Even though they had a physical injury, they still weren't responding the same, and that there's recognition growing across the board medically that it isn't just always about our bodies, and it isn't even just always about our minds either. I think we all intuitively have heard the requirement of mind, body, and spirit, or we need all three areas, the social aspects, our community aspects, our sense often of things like moral injustices. There's new terms that are just coming now into sort of scientific speak on things like institutional trauma, sanctuary trauma, moral injustice, and how does that fit into this medical paradigm? How does that fit in? What pill or medication makes that better? And as we have found over these years, the medications aren't necessarily making some of these specific areas better. Um, and especially as a female, um, many of us have also had a history of uh, sexual assaults in our workplaces. And we know scientifically women tend, especially with those backgrounds, to always do better in groups when it is female-only groups. We know scientifically a lot of group therapy for men does better in mixed-gendered groups, and that's great. But the science has always been pretty strong that women do better in female-only cohorts. And this program, Project Trauma Support, is one of the very first times I've seen a female-only cohort being encouraged and being open to discussing all aspects of our care, not just mind and body, but mind, body, and soul, and addressing things like sexual traumas in the workplaces as well. So, And how effective is this program? When you completed it, what had it done for you? I literally um, heard about this program, got so excited when I went to the website saying, I think this is what I've been missing and I need. Um, and I was lucky enough to get some funding 
through the Nicola Goddard Foundation um, to be able to attend. And that literally all happened within a week. So I only went on this course already uh, July 8th. It's a five-and-a-half-day course. So July 8th to July 13th, I met 11 other women who represent all sorts of first responder communities. So fire, ambulance, dispatch, um, police, OPP, and other military um, didn't know each other before, and now we literally are family. I I felt like I'd been given part of my life back. I felt like some of the things that I couldn't um, move past had suddenly had a relief that I could move forward. Can I prove all of this yet? No, of course I can't. Um, again, this doesn't fit well into a medical paradigm. But unfortunately for us, it was literally as we were sitting in our own course that we learned of Krista Carley's death. And again, as a physician in the past, I'm, it, it just pains me so much. Every suicide to me is something that is still potentially preventable. Um, and it, it, it really bothered me and a number of the other girls that there was no RCMP officer as part of our cohort. In fact, 14 cohorts have gone through now on this program, and we've had a grand total of two RCMP officers. Um, and as a f federal uh, sister in arms who, in my career, had worked side-by-side -side RCMP, I'd seen them as patients, we see them on deployments, we're, you know, fellow veterans, um, I'm certainly aware that they need all of the help and support that we also get as military veterans. And I, I couldn't help but being really touched on, is it just funding? If we had just had more access and more money, could people like Krista maybe have heard of these programs and come and taken part in them? It, are people losing hope because they think they've already tried everything? Mm -hmm. Do they think they're alone and that there is no other options? And yet, I think we really are on a cusp of getting some new treatments. Well, it certainly seems from what, you, what you've shared with me about Project Trauma Support that it is a really incredible program. Catherine, if I could just get you to please, I, I don't, I imagine this is very difficult, but if you could s share a few words about your great friend, uh, Krista, who was your troop mate, and, and, and we got to know on this program as well. Of course. Um, well, I lived with Krista for six months because we were troop mates. So we were in Regina together. So she slept right across the hall from me. And I uh, went through training together. And she was, um, she was a good recruit. She was excited about being a police officer. We both got um, transferred out to Alberta. But I was in Vagerville and she was in Strathmore. And all of us troopmates, we lose touch over the years. Krista and I lost touch. And um, so I didn't know what was happening to her until I came forward publicly in 2011 with my story. And the following day, my troopmate, Krista, came forward with her story. And the following day, oh, another troopmate of mine, Janet Merlot, she came forward, forward with her story, and we had no idea that we were all being sexually abused in our workplace. And uh, that, so that's actually what brought us together again. And uh, I had just spoken with Krista um, four days before she passed. And I had another treatment over here visiting, so we did a three-way phone call. And uh, Krista sounded really good. And the day um, that she passed, I was actually going to phone her. 
and I didn't. And so I still am stuck with, if I had spoken to her that day, would you and I, Roy and Karen, be having this conversation right now? If I had just phoned her like I was going to, and I didn't, and I'm still guilty about that. I feel guilt. And so that's why I tell people I'm having survivor's guilt because I was so close to her and I didn't see it coming. And I'm supposedly trained to see things like this and I didn't see it. And that's why my grieving process has been um, extremely difficult because Number one, I considered her one of my best friends, and um, and I didn't see it coming. I think, Karen, you're probably uh, better equipped to speak to Catherine about how she's feeling. Go ahead, Karen. <laughs> Make me feel better. <laughs> Again, unfortunately, I think that's part of why suicide is the challenge it is. Um, even though I was a physician in the military for 20 years, if I had the answers um, of how to better predict, I probably wouldn't be on this phone call either. Um, I'm in no better position than Catherine for stories that I can think of of people that were my peers and people that I knew and people that were my patients. Um, I think that's, again, the problem partly with suicide. It you're sick, and in those moments that you're sick, your thinking isn't right. And we can't, from the outside, imagine how you're thinking in those moments. But in those moments, often, you actually think it makes sense. You think you're actually doing the right thing in that moment, that everyone would be better off without you. Everything would be easier if you weren't here. The things that to everyone else on the outside make no logic whatsoever. Um, and this, again, to me, is why it's just so important to do these kind of information calls. If there's anybody that's out there now that is listening and or knows someone is married to someone, gave birth to somebody who they know is sitting in their basement, who they know isn't quite right, um, we really want to reach out to them, especially as women. We tend to isolate. We tend to take care of everyone else. We tend to take care of ourselves last. There is hope. We do see you. There is hope. There are options. You how do people reach out? Get help. Karen, how do people reach out? If, if somebody feels like they should, what do they do? What's the first thing, the best thing they can do? Obviously, ask for help. Yeah. If you already have anybody that you can call and talk to, a best friend, a relative, right. whoever you're feeling comfortable to actually make that first call to, we always say it's the first call is the hardest. Yeah. So whoever it is that you're most comfortable with, there are numbers for suicide prevention in every province. Okay. If you're a veteran, there's 1-800 numbers for Veterans Affairs and for RCMP. There's certainly resources out there. So again, especially for those that are family members, are you aware of all the resources? Have you made sure that the people you're concerned about know exactly who and how to call if they ever did have that need to call, and at worst, there's always 911. Yeah. It is obviously a medical emergency. Let me ask you this too, and and I uh, I must do this now. Uh, when it comes to Project Trauma Support, which we understand coming full circle, is from what you've told us, uh, just a necessary um, program for for women to have 
access to. Is there a GoFundMe page? Has that been set up? Unfortunately, at this time, there's quite a few separate GoFundMe pages that have turned up all over Canada where people have just said, I know someone that needs to go to this, and they've set it up on behalf of a friend or a family member or a peer from their workplace. Okay. But because right now this program is still less than two years, and there are other programs out there. I'm not aware of any others that offer gender-specific. So let me do, I'm sorry to interrupt, but let me do this then. Let's you and I stay in touch. You provide me with the information that I can pass on to my my listeners about about the program, and they can uh, get involved and provide some level of support. And I can pl- I'll pledge to you right now that I'll be among the first to do so. Catherine, uh, I've known you by phone for, well, longer than, it's been seven or eight years now. And yes. you're, you're a remarkable, remarkable woman. You're, um, you've done so much for this country. You were a frontline first responder, and you have people's respect where I didn't know Krista personally, but I, I miss her too. And Janet's a wonderful lady, and we're going to stay in touch. And that's not just words. We will stay in touch. And thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. All the best. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. I, uh, like so many other Canadians, was absolutely shocked. Shocked by a tweet from Seamus O'Regan. The uh, Veterans Affairs Minister for Canada, in which he, like other Trudeau government ministers, has seen it fit to insult Canadians and to divide Canadians, divide and conquer, I suppose. So uh, what I can best do here is go back to something that uh, was on Twitter yesterday, and it was on, um, on at Seamus O'Regan. And uh, there was one person from Newfoundland, and I, I guess uh, O'Regan was back home for some event or other. And uh, he's being addressed by a fellow Newfoundlander who tweets in part, and, and he's, he's dealing with people who've left Newfoundland to go and, and work somewhere else in the country. And uh, he tweets... Because families, friends, neighbors, also really great people have moved away. You wouldn't even have to give them government money for them to stay. Just stop taking hard-earned dollars from them. Business in Newfoundland needs cheaper labor, though, a buy. So Mr. O'Regan replying to this uh, Keith or Chili Willie and L. No, we just need more job creators. Immigrants are better at creating new businesses and new jobs than Canadian-born people. Simple. Let me repeat that. No, we just need more job creators. Immigrants are better at creating new businesses and new jobs than Canadian-born people. Simple. So I did a little research, what I like to do when I see something like that. I want to know where it's coming from. Where did he get his information? How much reading did he do? How much was fed to him by somebody on his staff? Is he, uh, is he deeply knowledgeable, or has he only got one or two lines that he's drawing from? And so I tweeted to him, to uh, Seamus O'Regan, uh, Mr. O'Regan, yes, BDC, that's Business Development Bank of Canada numbers show, 5.3% of immigrants owned a business after nine years versus 4.8% of those who were born Canadian. 
Yet businesses owned by born Canadians employed about twice as many workers as those of immigrants, seven to four. Yours is another snide LPC dismissal of born Canadians. Hashtag people kind. And then I added, if you'd like to discuss on air, contact me, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. There's actually quite a wide list of questions I'd have for you, of interest no doubt to Canadians, whether born here or not. I can arrange for you to be on the air with me today. As in today. Not a reply, not a word, nothing. Nothing on Twitter, no snide remark, no, I'm willing to take you on, because I'm an ex-media guy and I know how to deal with talk show hosts like you, nothing like that. I kind of expected, actually. I really did. And a little voice in the back of my head said, he's going to go for it. And I wanted him to go for it. Because there are many questions that need to be answered by this government. And whether it's Mr. Trudeau who will not step into... Well, we can forget about Mr. Trudeau doing the show. Um, or any of the other ministers. I would really... I don't care which one it is. There are questions that need to be answered. A whole bunch of them. And Mr. O'Regan, who was one of the party of Trudeauites who went to the Bahamas to stay with Justin's Uncle Kay. We all remember that story. But I just wanted the opportunity to speak to Seamus O'Regan about what he tweeted. No, we just need more job creators. Let's stick it line by line. No, we just need more job creators. Immigrants are better at creating new businesses and new jobs than Canadian-born people. Simple. Simple. All right, so I ran that past the Premier of Saskatchewan, who joined us an hour ago. Here's what he said. It is a tremendously divisive uh, treat, uh, tweet, uh, pardon me, uh, and... and there's really no call for it in particular uh, from the source, uh, uh, you know, a minister of our of our federal government's cabinet. So uh, it's disappointing at the very least. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's, there is one part of the tweet, tweet that I actually agree with, uh, just a portion of it. And that is the fact that we need new, more jobs. We need uh, we need more uh, people uh, here in the in in the uh, in Canada, and we need more families. But the way to do that is not through divisive tweeting such as this. It's through uh, laying a, a groundwork, if you will, or laying an environment where businesses, uh, all businesses, uh, irrespective of whether they're started by new Canadians or or, or Canadians that have been here for generations, um, lay that that environment so that all businesses can succeed and more people can start businesses. And that actually is, uh, you know, the challenge that I've been talking about uh, for all of my months as, as Premier and prior to that, that we have in our nation um, right now with this federal government. So as a member of, of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's cabinet, um, I think his time would be uh, far better spent um, working with that cabinet to you know, walk back, water down, uh, change uh, some of the direction that they've had with respect to attracting investment from overseas. And we're all aware of the, of the decline in our FDI numbers here in the nation um, in, in ensuring that the businesses that we have aren't picking up stakes and, and moving to other other areas of the world. So it's a divisive, disappointing tweet at best. And I, I uh, in the same way, I spoke to the carbon tax last week. Uh, it's one that maybe the federal government should come out and, or this individual should come out and apologize for and, and uh, you know, move forward on, on what Canadians elected these this government to do. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He never refuses to come on the air. 
You know, when Brad Wall left as Premier of Saskatchewan, I, I wondered what would happen because Mr. Wall was such a favorite. Well, I can say that Scott and Moe is every much, every bit as much a favorite as Brad Wall. He never says no, and he answers questions. And he's not shy to challenge a federal government minister. Or he's not, challenge, not, 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 not shy to challenge the prime minister. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Beth, you already know from last weekend, she's a young woman from Ontario who lives with intractable pain, has a really, really serious issue with the pain. She was born with uh, spinal cancer, and so that's how life began. And uh, it continued, the pain continued to grow, and she was able to, as so many other pain patients have been able to, find a physician assistance. And the physician assistants were in a pain clinic normally, or a pain specialist, if your family doctor wasn't going to do it, they provide you with opioids. And the opioids created a manageable life for chronic pain patients. And then the anti-opioid frenzy began, and the whole issue became really unfocused and unhinged. And uh, chronic pain patients on the verge sometimes of committing suicide because of the pain levels found themselves and continue to find themselves today, tomorrow, next week, and the week beyond from what I can imagine maybe for a considerable period of time. They're not going to be able to get the opioids they require because of uh, the suggestion that guidelines that first appeared were the Centers for Disease Control in the United States and then were picked up, somewhat modified and picked up in Canada. These guidelines have become the law as far as doctors are concerned, and it's interpreted in a way that doctors feel that they're being threatened, that if they provide, prescribe opioids, their respective colleges of physicians and surgeons are going to come down hard on them, perhaps take away their licenses to practice medicine. And Beth is one of those patients who heard her doctor say, my license to practice medicine is more important to me than your health. Well, Beth is back with us on the Roy Green Show. I should say this, that her call to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario was recorded secretly while it was ongoing. Beth was there with her mom. They recorded the phone call, and we played back a good part of the call. We've edited it a little more because we want to spend some time talking to them and then also hear about four minutes of the call. Beth, it's good to talk to you again. How are you today? Um, I'm all right, right. Uh Good to be on to talk to you again, too. Thank you. The uh, the struggle continues, huh? Yeah, it was a rough morning this morning, but uh, I'm moving now. So. When you uh, when you get up in the morning, what is the morning like for you? Just re- tell our listeners what it's like when you wake up. What's the pain situation like? When I wake up in the morning, I'm awakened by my pain every day, every morning. 
usually sometime between 2 a.m. And if I'm lucky, I can get to 4 or 5 a.m. Uh, before it wakes me up. And it, it's very severe. Uh, it's a ton. And I'm I, it's, uh, in tears. I, it's, it's unbearable. And uh, my medicine never is able to kick in fast enough, which is part of the problem with the new policies back before the policies I was given adequate medicine for daytime, nighttime, and breakthrough pain, they call it, where they would give me, uh, a, a, on top of the long-acting medicine, uh, fast-acting medicine, so when you're in severe, unbearable pain, you don't have to wait the 20 minutes to half hour for the medicine to kick in. You can take one of these fast-acting pills that'll kick in within five minutes, and I don't, I don't get those anymore. I don't get any nighttime medicine. I only get not even enough to get through the day. So um, every morning, it's not a question of if I'm going to be in pain. It's just how much pain am I going to be in every day. So. That's, that really is a terrible way to face the day, and it's so unnecessary. And I should add that many of the chronic pain patients I've spoken with have pointed out, made it very clear, actually, that the opioid pain medications they're prescribed didn't take the pain away. It just made life more manageable. And it never was a case of addiction. It was just a case of the opioids providing pain relief, as they've done for thousands of years. Was that your case as well? That's exactly my case, yes. Uh, with you is uh, Anne-Marie Gatto. She was going to be over this last weekend, and I'm sorry, Anne-Marie, we failed to connect with you, but that's probably at, at our end, not yours. Uh, registered social worker, psychotherapist, and a friend of Beth's. Would you, in your words, please explain to us what Beth's situation is? What is she living with? And why may, Why is it so unnecessary? Uh, and what do you say to the, uh, to the colleges of physicians and surgeons who insist, we're not telling doctors not to prescribe opioids. We're just telling them to be responsible. And if a doctor feels that his or her license to practice medicine is being threatened by us, that's not the case. That's not what we're doing at all. What do you say to that, Anne-Marie? Oh, sure. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I have a lot to say, actually. Um, I've been writing to the college extensively, um, first to two physicians, and then I was passed on to someone in their office. No one has ever answered my questions, and they all just continually repeat the same rhetoric. Uh, the college has accepted no responsibility that they've rigidly enforced these dangerous 2017 guidelines, which have essentially made a mockery out of chronic pain treatment sent patients spiraling back into disability like Beth, and some even death due to medical collapse or suicide. Well, the college's solution, so they say, has self-destruct for the patient, not them, built right into it. Now, they propose that patients report their doctors to the college for investigation if they're not happy with their treatment. Well, firstly, investigations may take years, and do people in severe pain even have years to attempt all of this while they're in severe pain? And secondly, can you imagine what would happen to Beth and others like her if they reported um, their doctor to the college? I mean, these patients are barely hanging on by a thread to that doctor relationship. And what do you think would happen once that doctor is informed that Beth has reported him? End of well, relationship. She'd be dropped like a hot potato. And again, the college says that no doctor can abandon a pain patient 
Yet we know this has happened right across Canada and continues to happen on a regular basis. So like Beth has said, patient, pain patients are untouchable now, like modern-day lepers, if you will, and the college who has created the problem has turned their backs on us all. They've ruptured or completely broken relationships between doctors and pain patients. They refuse to accept any culpability for this or to do anything to rectify the problem. So I say, and as do others, their idea of a solution to this is yet more danger for the patient and shouldn't even be entertained. And we're talking about millions of people, millions of people in Canada and over a hundred million people in the United States. And I've talked to pain physicians or people, physicians who are involved with the uh, pain treatment who've said to me privately that uh, in their discussions with other doctors, they are noticing that either patients are talking more about suicide or maybe are committing suicide more already. Now, if that's not a red light, if that's not enough to start the discussion about how you change this, how you provide for the patient, then I don't know what is. Because what they're doing, as you know, and Beth knows and listeners to this program know because we've talked about it so frequently and we've talked to the patients, they're taking the cases of overdoses by generic addicts, as I call them, who have a problem, who need assistance as well. But they're taking those people, those patients, those addicts, and using their deaths to take away the medication from the people who would never trade the drugs, who just needed to provide some reasonable quality of life. It's awful. It's awful. And if I may offer a a quick analogy here, I think the author was Josh Bloom. He's a terrific writer in the U.S., and he likened the situation to, um, to, the, yes, to the U.S. being, um, this say, for example, attacked by North Korea. Yeah. And in order to try to protect themselves and those casualties, they start attacking Sweden. Yeah, yeah. exactly. See, exactly. It, it's, exactly. It's ludicrous. Beth, if, can you just give us in about 30 or 40 seconds what happened when you made the call? Um, I called the college and tried to get through to them that the problem is because of their guidelines that they've put me in this situation and what they suggest I should do about my situation and um, they they really seem very indifferent I don't I don't didn't feel that they even cared about my situation at all and um, really just uh, put me off and suggest I report my doctor which we all know is not going to get me anywhere it would likely make my situation worse right. I, I i'm not going to do that and i tried to make very clear to them that i was not doing that so. okay so let's listen to a little bit of the call last week we played more of it but i want you to hear this part of the call that beth made to the college of physicians and surgeons of ontario they didn't know it was being recorded and the person at the other end is specifically there to help or deal with patients with chronic pain Uh, tapered me very quickly and um, without my consent and uh, against my constant begging him to please stop and please help me because I can't live this way. I've been tapered down to a dose that I'm no longer comfortable or able to function daily at. I understand that my doctors was under investigation and went through a nine-month uh, monitored by you guys, CPSO, and um, according to 
my doctor, I was singled out by an investigator as a person who must be selling. And even though my doctor is uh, no longer under investigation, he refuses to put my dose back to a functional uh, level where I can function daily. The appointment I just had was yesterday, and I explained to him again that I'm not able to function with, with where I'm at now. It's, I'm in severe pain. I am not sleeping. I need help. I have to weigh the options every day whether or not to take my own life, but I don't want to look like this anymore. He told me that he likes me, but he likes his license better. And it's not fair that I've been forced to live in so much discomfort and pain when just a couple pills a day would significantly change my life. Um, he tried referring me to a pain clinic in London, which is two hours away from me, and he says they refuse to see me, and he won't tell me why. Um, so I need to know, since you guys are the ones who have put the fear in him and all other doctors who won't touch me with a 10-foot pole because of the medication I'm on, what I'm supposed to do. So there's a little bit of the call that uh, Beth made to the college. Beth, when you hear this back, what do you feel? I feel angry. I, I feel so angry because I know that I'm not alone. I know there's so many, so many other people that are suffering just as bad and are receiving the same treatment. If they call the college, nobody's going to get anywhere with them. Did they respond at all? Have you heard from them since the call? Have they shown any interest in helping you? No, no, and that's actually not the first call that I made. I made a call to them when the taper first started, and I spoke to a woman there, and she told me, well, you just need to find a new doctor. She gave me a website link to bring up all the doctors in my area and told me I should just start at the top and find keep calling until I find one and I did try that but I didn't get very far because they don't tell you anything on the phone whether they'd even treat me and they just tell you to come in and then once you come in and they find out the medication you're on they just send you back to the doctor you're already with and say we can't help you you're best at a pain clinic that's out of out of our field and um, the pain clinic I'm at is the only one here so yeah and Maria thought from you Yes. Um, isn't it interesting how they've created the problem, but they put the solution directly back on the patient's head as if they're the ones to correct it? I mean, they keep insisting that they have no authority to, to call or contact any, any physician and order them to provide service, yet we know for sure they can absolutely contact them and order them not to provide service. So, in effect, they've, the college has created this shameful problem that never existed before, yet somehow they cannot create a solution to the problem that they created? Are, are we supposed to believe this? Do you know uh, what I do? In my opinion, they're completely disingenuous. Do you know what's really difficult to believe is that the patient stories are largely not believed or not given the priority that they deserve and require, even from people in my industry and in media. Pay attention what pain patients are telling her. It's not we're talking about a low-level headache here. We're talking about the kind of pain that will drive you mad, and it's part of your life 24-7.
Uh, Beth, I'm going to stay in touch with you, and Anne-Marie, we'll stay in touch, of course, and we'll have you back on the show. I have an idea about something I'd like to do going forward. Thank you for joining us today. Our thoughts are with you. Our prayers are with you, Beth, and uh, we'll keep you. fighting for you. Okay? Thank you so much, Roy. Take Thank care. You, Roy. Take care. Seamus O'Regan, he has uh, tweeted. He has tweeted uh, his, I guess, apology or explanation for the tweet that got this country talking. And uh, he tweets, in which he suggested that uh, immigrants are better at starting businesses and creating employment than born Canadians. So he uh, tweets at uh, Seamus O'Regan, well, that was foolish in an attempt to defend new programs to retain immigrant entrepreneurs in my province. I ended up defeating the purpose. Better is a word I like because it's aspirational. You can always do better, but when comparing people, no one likes to be on the lesser end. Poor choice of words on my part. If you look at the Statistics Canada study I linked, the difference is close and often circumstantial, far better if I'd said that immigrant entrepreneurs hold their own. I met last week with an entrepreneur who rightfully felt put out by what I said. I explained my intentions and apologized for my poor choice of words. I also made it clear that these new programs were only meant to clear the red tape some newcomers suffer, not offer advantages that exclude present small business owners. The meeting ended amicably, as many like this do, on both sides, uh, once both sides have had a chance to explain themselves. Immigration is essential in my province. We have more people retiring and uh, fewer youngsters being born than just about any other province. It's a tough reality. So we need more people to create jobs and pay taxes so we can afford what we got, let alone grow the economy. The last thing I want to do is hinder that message. We're all in this together. Words shouldn't divide that purpose. They should unite. I'll be a lot more vigilant about how I use them from here on. That's from Seamus O'Regan. So I don't like to piggyback somebody's apology or explanation, but I have to just say this, that I looked at the numbers in that study. Some of it is from the Business Development Bank of Canada, and uh, it really took some doing to screw up the tweet the way you did, Mr. O'Regan. But uh, give you points for stepping up and recognizing the fact that you did and explaining it, not having somebody else do it for you. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 